What's better than one, John? Here's Johnny. Hmm. Nobody really knows. That's why we put two of them together. This is Kenzano and Wilner, a.k.a. John and John. Welcome to a new edition of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. I'm John Kanzano. You can read me exclusively now at johnkanzano.com. That's where you get my columns. Uh, grab a free subscription. Grab a paid subscription. Uh, if you want in-depth reporting uh, and uh, my commentary along with it, you get it at johnkanzano.com. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group is here. Wilner, tell him where to find you. That's our mothership, the Bay Area News Group, Pac12Hotline.com. We are syndicated all across the Pac-12 footprint media outlets. And uh, at Wilner Hotline is the Twitter feed. Can't wait to get started. Here we got games to talk about finally. And you were at one of them, one of the biggest ones. And I'm curious what it felt and sounded, looked like in person for you in Atlanta compared to those of us who watched the Oregon debacle on TV. Yeah. I mean, first of all, the stage, like, you know, you ever been to a Broadway play, you realize, you know, you've seen plays in other places uh, and then you go to Broadway and you go, wow, wow, this is a stage and look at the performers and the performance. And, um, you know, Mercedes Benz stadium is phenomenal venue. It's huge. It's a great facility. Um, it's first class reminds me a lot of the NFL stadium in Vegas, but, Uh, And Georgia came to play like Georgia. Fantastic. But what struck me in being there was how out of sorts Oregon looked, how ordinary at best Oregon looked. They had a little deer in the headlights to them. And I think even diehard Oregon Duck fans would admit that, you know, I, I, I left the first quarter going, gosh, I can't remember anything positive that Oregon did. And meanwhile, Georgia looked flawless. It looked like a week seven performance, especially on offense. And Stetson Bennett was, you know, they were using more motion than they used last year. They were using different uh, formations than they used last year. Uh, The beat reporters who were down the way from me who cover Georgia football said, you know, they thought maybe uh, Kirby Smart would would do some different things to kind of throw Dan Lanning off. But the offense looked like a different offense uh, in, in what they were trying to do. But everything Georgia did was perfect. They executed. They made plays. Their athletes were sensational. Uh, Oregon just, you know, you probably saw it on television, didn't look prepared. The stage was too big for the play. And Seven McGee, the Oregon wide receiver at the end of the game, just he was sitting on the bench on the Oregon sideline. The game ended. Both teams shook hands. McGee never moved. They both players on either side kind of said, hey, good game. And they went off to their respective locker rooms. I look back, Seven McGee's still sitting there. It, he was stunned. And I think Oregon fans who were in attendance were stunned. I did not expect Oregon to win the game. But Wilner, I did not think they would get blown off the field. And they did. Yeah, the the surprise to me watching was was more their defense, right? I was not sure how Bo Nix was going to look. A be- good Bo or bad Bo. Uh, but I thought the defense would keep a minute, at least for two or three quarters. And, you know, they got a lot of talent, especially on that front seven. And those guys just got they got overrun, uh, totally, totally outplayed and totally outcoached. It made you wonder, you know, how Kirby Smart used his August versus how Dan Lanning used his August. It's almost like they were preparing for for two different events. And 
And I wonder, and I know it's early, and we'll see, you know, BYU will be a great test to see what the real Oregon team looks like, you know, in two weeks. But I remember thinking, you know, the the Utah game, the first Utah game last year, to me, that was not just a loss. That was a program, that was a trajectory changer for a program. And I wonder if this is more than just a law, a bad loss in week one, but it is just telling us, like, it's not an outlier. This Oregon team is not maybe what we expected it to be. We'll see. But, but boy, that you don't lose like that and just pick, pick up next week like everything's fine. Yeah, and it was, you know, sometimes a loss is just a loss. But it was the way Oregon lost that I think really shocked me. And if you go back to the bowl game last year, they played a terrible first half against Oklahoma in the bowl game. You go back to the Pac-12 championship game against Utah. They, you know, they got blown off the field in Vegas. You go back to the the other game, the first game last season against Utah. They got, you know, just ambushed in Salt Lake City. So it's sort of the trajectory of those things. And I think Oregon fans went from talking about wanting to be in the Big Ten to uh, sort of thinking about, gosh, like, you know, Eastern Washington's coming this week and Eastern Washington uh, has got a quarterback who, you know, who can throw the ball around the around the stadium and and then comes BYU. And, um, you know, so I, I think it's going to be really interesting to kind of look at Georgia and go, look, were they really just that good? And that experienced, especially on offense, that they could make Oregon look bad or. Is it alarm bells for Oregon this season? Because that, you know, I left that game. I left Mercedes-Benz Stadium going, gosh, is Oregon like a seven-win team now, a six- or seven-win team? And is Georgia really that good? Because that's how it looked. Georgia got 49 points, Wilner. Everyone saw it. Georgia could have had 70 if they wanted it. Oh, no question. Uh, ab- absolutely. Three out of the last four now for Oregon have really been bad showings. So, yeah, we'll see if they are. I think the BYU game it will be very, very telling. Cause then I think after BYU, they might have Stanford. It's going to, you know, we'll know by October 1st, exactly. I think what this Oregon team is, is going to look like I mean, the, the disparity in recruiting and in, you know, personnel did not account for that 46 point differential, right? There was, there was preparation and coaching uh, played a big role. And, and, you know, Oregon took a little bit of a roll of the dice with Dan Lanning, you know, what, couple of years as a major college coordinator, Kenny Dillingham is play caller, young guys, like what, 30, 31. And Tosh Lupoy doesn't have a ton of experience. So the top three guys in that football org chart are all young. You know, they loads of energy, you know, great recruiting, but you know, that we could see this, this program take some lumps as these guys get experience. Yeah, they've they've got a they've got to rebound this week and show that they know what the hell they're doing because I think there's some people wondering, do they? Uh, meanwhile, Utah had a win at Florida and let it slip away inside the six yard line twice, got no points, interception at the end of the game. Uh, I was thinking about Cam Rising. You know, I trust him so much and I've seen him make so many good plays. He could have thrown that ball away. He could have thrown it off the scoreboard. He could have thrown it. You know off the goalpost if he wanted to. What he couldn't do was throw an interception in that situation, and he did. Um, I thought that really turned the Pac-12's weekend into a bad weekend, that game by itself. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly – that was the game the conference needed to win in terms of the playoffs. I, you know, I never thought Oregon was a legit playoff team, but Utah, yes. And now they're not out of it, uh, but they, they may have to run the table, which hasn't been done in the – 12 school era 
uh, it, it, I, I picked Florida in my, they were in my preseason poll. I, I think Florida is going to be good, like eight, nine win good, but it's still going to be very difficult for Utah. And, and as a result, it's going to be very difficult for the Pac 12 to, to get in. I mean, USC might be the, you know, the best hope at this point, because especially because they got Notre Dame on the schedule, UCLA could have a real good year, but they're playing three cupcakes and that's going to not, that's not going to go over well with the committee. So really tough loss. And it's, it's interesting because last year, remember there was a lot of bad losses, losses to BYU, San Diego state, you know, FCS group of five this year, the, the PAC 12 was perfect except for the three games against the power five. So it, it I don't know, we, we'll get into our takeaways here in a few minutes, but, but it, it, we could be seeing a, a change, a little bit, a strengthening of the middle, even if the top isn't so good. Yeah, and I, that brings me to Oregon State. I thought Oregon State had the best win of the weekend. I mean, Boise State does not look like old Boise State. I think Andy Avalos has got some problems there, and they got a bunch of players that jumped into the portal. Uh, they got, you know, they just don't look right. He lost five games last year, but Oregon State. Uh, you know, they caused five turnovers. They had eight tackles for losses. They, you know, they they had a bunch of big explosion plays on offense. They had, you know, uh, they had play uh, catches of 74, 47, 41, 27, and 26 yards. Jack Coletto ran for a big touchdown. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure Oregon State is more than maybe a seven or eight win team, but they sure made me think about it. And I thought that was a really encouraging victory for the conference. Yeah, their defense looked like those really good Mike Riley defenses, fast and aggressive, making plays. Uh, You could definitely see the impact Trent Bray has had. It's a totally different unit than what we saw last year when they, you know, they got overrun by Cal. They they couldn't hang, you know, they couldn't stop Colorado. If if their defense can play like that consistently, they are going to be, you know, a top, Top four, top five team in the conference, no doubt about that. And I also thought Arizona, you know, in terms of most impressive wins, I put Arizona right up there with, with Oregon State because of where it was, who it was against. You know, San Diego State has has hammered the Pac-12 repeatedly over the last five years. Beat Arizona badly last season in Tucson, and then the Wildcats go in there first game in a new stadium, and they dominated San Diego State. I thought that was a really impressive win. Uh, for Arizona and you know the conference needs you can't have terrible teams you know and Arizona is no longer terrible I think that's clear so that that was a positive I thought we saw the we got the makings of a terrible team I think in Boulder that was a bad bad showing but but I was real impressed with Arizona yeah look Jed Fish has 50 new players this season that's second to Arizona State uh, in the conference, Arizona State has 51, but that's 50 new players. And this game was interesting because San Diego State had won seven of the last nine uh, against the Pac-12. Uh, you know, they were, you know, we're talking about them as an expansion candidate and, you know, talking about, you know, how they have performed well on the field. And this was an Arizona team that really struggled last year to score points. They got 38 in this game. I thought it was a really nice win for Jed Fish in Arizona. And and look, another one of those bolstering victories for the conference. Now, the Pac-12 went nine and three in the opening weekend. But those three losses, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was Oregon and Utah and Colorado. And, I, you know, the Utah game is the one I thought that they would win and they did not. But, you know, I think 
it really hurt the narrative. What else did you take away? Uh, you know, Stanford, USC, Washington, Washington State, Cal, Arizona State. What else? You know, one of the big things that I was watching and and I think is going to be telling through the whole season was the quarterback play, right? And I jotted this down. Teams that, based on what we have seen, should have better quarterback play this season, right? And Arizona is a perfect example, right? Jaden Delora, I mean, light years better than what they had last season. So I've jotted down, there's, what, eight schools that I think clearly should have better quarterback play, either because the returnee is that much older and more experienced or because they brought somebody in. So I got Cal and Stanford, USC, UCLA, Arizona, Utah, Oregon State, Washington. They should all be better uh, for a variety of reasons. The question marks are ASU, and I don't know that ASU is going to be any worse uh, with with Emory Jones than it was with Jane Daniels. And then Colorado, which is, uh, you know, TBD, and they may make a quarterback change this week. They should. They, sh- You know, JT Shroud has got to start. I, I don't see how they could do anything else. Uh, Washington State, uh, that was an uneven performance by the Cougars. Uh, I, I'm sure they were not – they didn't want to show a whole lot because they got Wisconsin next week, but that that was a little bit rickety. And, and then Oregon. And, you know, you, you certainly would know the Oregon situation better than I would and whether there's any chance they're going to make a change or – you know, even if that is on the radar in a couple of weeks, yeah. but the, you know, most of the schools should have better quarterback play and it wasn't very good last year. I think it's going to be closer to PAC 12 standard this season. Yeah. Bo Nix did not play well for Oregon. I mean, his second interception was terrible. And, and, you know, even though Oregon moved the ball a little bit, uh, anytime he got near the red zone, he did look skittish. He didn't look like he was comfortable. He threw off his back foot a few times it got me thinking about Ty Thompson, the backup, and Jay Butterfield. And, you know, if if Dan Lanning doesn't give Ty Thompson some reps soon, I think the fan base is going to um, gonna get really antsy, and, and if especially if Bo Nix doesn't play well. But uh, it got me thinking about, like, you know, is Thompson just not ready? Like, we don't see practice. Is he just that far away? And if that is true... Uh, you know, that Oregon doesn't have a quarterback that they have developed. I got to ask why I got to ask why, you know, did Mario Cristobal not develop a quarterback? Did, did, you know, is Dan Lanning in the time he's been there, not help develop Ty Thompson? I mean, those questions are coming if Bo Nix doesn't play well. Um, did we learn yeah. anything? Yeah, go ahead. Three years, right? It'd be three years. Cause I mean, Tyler Shuck, he's there, he, some talent, but yeah. not super, super sharp. He leaves and then they had Brown last year and now we'll see. I mean, it, you know, it, it definitely is is something that should be on our radar is that is yeah. the quarterback situation. In Oregon. And, and look, I know people bring quarterbacks in. This is the thing you bring them in in the portal. But it, it's inexcusable to me that after Marcus Mariota, after after Justin Herbert, that Oregon didn't have another guy that they developed. And they have turned to Vernon Adams. They have turned to Anthony Brown. They have turned to Dakota Prukup. You know, it is. It has been a revolving door there, and now Bo Nix. So you know they got to figure something out. And if and if Bo Nix does not play well this week, um, I think the fan base is going to be beside itself, wanting to see Ty Thompson or Jay Butterfield. Uh, did you learn anything about USC? Did you learn anything about Stanford uh, in watching them this weekend? No, I mean I learned that Emmett Smith or EJ Smith is better than Barry Sanders Jr. <laughs> and not as good as. Christian McCaffrey, you know, if we're talking about sons of NFL players, but I, I will see, I mean, Stanford USC is going to be super telling for both, both teams is Stanford. And, and I know later in the week we'll get into the games, but is Stanford really 
significantly better. And is SC, you know, capable of, of being a, a title contender, right? There is a very strong correlation. I think there's one exception, very strong correlation between how USC has fared in that early season game against Stanford and how good the Trojans have been, you know, during the whole year. When they beat Stanford, they typically are very good. Uh, so we'll see. They look great, but, you know, Rice had uh, Rice threw uh, three pick sixes, right? So, uh, you know, I think that it couldn't have gone any better if you're SC, but it doesn't, it doesn't tell you much. Same with UCLA. You know, they just were not playing high enough level competition uh, and UCLA won't for a while, but, but Stanford SC is, is near the top of the list this coming week in terms of how much it's going to tell us about the two teams. A lot was made of the lack of attendance at UCLA. They sold only 27,143 tickets. That's tickets sold. There were fewer people inside the Rose Bowl. Um, now UCLA's fall quarter doesn't start till September 19th. So there's no students. The temperature at kickoff was 98 degrees. It was hot. We get it. Uh, also, you know, UCLA is a basketball school, you know, and people will tell you that, but, but this was a record low for tickets sold. This beat November of 1992 when they played Oregon state at, at the Rose bowl and they only sold 32,513 tickets. Um, there's something going on here at UCLA. Is it Chip Kelly, Wilner? Is it, is it the Big Ten? Are, are fans voting? Or is it, is it USC? Are, are you know Southern California casual fans who don't have a dog in the fight? Are they choosing to buy a ticket to USC and not UCLA? What is happening? Yeah, I don't think that there's that much crossover with the fans. I just think every UCLA fan is is saving their money to buy tickets for the Rutgers game. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's interesting that they gave Chip Kelly uh, a contract extension. But, you know, if you notice that they didn't give the, the buyout situation is pretty manageable for the school. And there were not a whole lot of UCLA fans that I knew of that were thrilled that Chip was coming back, even though they won eight games last year. Still a lot of people who aren't sold on on his tenure. And then you combine that with the heat and the holiday weekend and Bowling Green. And I mean, if you would ask me ahead of time, how many would be at the game, you know, or tickets sold, I would have probably said low to mid thirties. So it was a, it was a little bit lower, but I, I just, that is a a perfect storm for empty seats uh, for the, for the, for the Bruins. Meanwhile, across town, Trojans had something like 60,000, you know, everybody's very excited there. But uh, I don't know, you know, it's going to take UCLA. They got uh, Alabama State and and uh, Southern, South Alabama coming in still. It's going to take UCLA f- probably four home games to, to get enough people in the seat to actually fill the Rose Bowl once. Yeah, I, and I, I think it was more of an indictment of, you know, like I considered it. Are, are the UCLA fans upset about the Big Ten thing? And I considered the heat and I considered the students, but those things have happened before. The heat and the students not being there that, you know, that's happened before. But, you know, it is a little bit of a perfect storm, but I think it's the non-conference schedule. I think that is the biggest factor for people tuning out. Nobody wants to go see these things. Like, you know, if you want to, you don't want to see Bowling Green or Alabama State or South Alabama, or do you want to mow your lawn and take a nap? Like, that's a serious debate. And it so, is, yeah. Yeah, I think it was the non-conference schedule. And if I'm Martin Jarman, the UCLA D, I'm looking 
forward to maybe some better schedules in the future. But, you know, I also noted that Chip Kelly now won four straight. That's his longest win streak at UCLA. So I think there is a lack of enthusiasm for UCLA football. And I think it's bad opposition. And that doesn't make anybody want to show up. No, and and to be fair to the Bruins, they were supposed to play Michigan in week two in Ann Arbor. Michigan bailed. So that's why they ended up going with the uh, HBCU. Uh, But certainly Bowling Green is not is not going to get people out on on a holiday weekend. And that, you know, it's an interesting topic for the conference as a whole. Right. Because there's been a debate for years. Should they stay at nine conference games? Should they go down to eight conference games? And I remember talking to Oregon AD Rob Mullins about this one time and his, you know, his whole mindset about scheduling. He's like, look, scheduling is a local economic issue. And if you drop from nine to eight, you got, you do have somebody to play that people are going to come see, you know, you can't, if you're the PAC 12, you can't go from playing a conference game to, to adding an extra non-conference game. And that's BYU. I mean, that's uh, Bowling Green or Western yeah. Kentucky, right? The fans out here, they need to see quality opponents. And and that is part of the whole calculation the conference has got to make in this, this nine verse eight. And I know, you know, Merton Hanks told you that, you know, they really want to go to eight. If they do that, then that extra non-conference game has got to, for a lot of reasons, be a high quality opponent and how are they going to make that work? I'll go further than that. I think it not only has to be a high-quality opponent, I think it has to be a partnership between the ACC and the Pac-12, and it has to be crossover games. Because, you know, I, I talked to two ADs after Merton Hanks made that comment, and one of them said, hey, we're having a hard time scheduling payday games right now with with three non-conference games. And they're seeing the normal numbers that used to be around 450,000, 500,000, maybe 600,000. Now pushing to a million or a million five. Oh, you're know skyrocketing. Port- yeah. Portland State asked, you know, Alabama asked Portland State to play a game. Portland State asked for 1.5 million. Like that's the number that they want to go play, you know, a, a, an SEC opponent. And so a Pac 12 opponent, you know, you can probably get them for 750,000, 600,000. But when Merton Hakes made that comment on my show, I immediately heard from, you know, a couple ADs who said, we don't want to go to eight conference games unless we have another conference that will partner with us because they're having a heck of a time getting quality games to uh, to your point. Yeah. And that, and for, for people who don't know how it works, you know, if there's a partnership and you schedule a home and home, you know, state Oregon state's got a home and home with wake forest, you know, that that's a neutral financially it's neutral, right? You pay them, Oregon state pays wake forest travel and vice versa. When Oregon state goes to, goes to uh, Winston-Salem. But if you're bringing in, you know, um, it's Colorado State, if you're bringing in Bowling Green, if you're bringing in Kent State, you got to pay. And uh, that is another example of how the revenue disparity among conferences is playing out on the front lines. Because the SEC and Big Ten schools, they got enough money, they can pay a million or a million five. And that gives them the ability to manipulate their schedule for maximum success. And with these, with these, the cost of these games going up and up, it it's going to be harder for the ACC, the big 12 and the PAC 12 to, to pay what you need to pay to get just the right opponent in, in town. Yeah. Washington will host Portland state this week. Washington is paying Portland state a half a million dollars to play that game. And, you know, uh, next season, 
Portland State will get 575000 to play Oregon. So, you know, Portland State needs to play these games and other, uh, you know, Big Sky uh, Conference teams need to play these games. But, um, yeah, the, there's some concern about going from nine to eight unless you have a crossover partner. And if that happens, then, you know, you don't have to worry about it. But, you know, hey, let's let's face it. Part of Oregon playing Georgia in Atlanta was a fun. It was a financial decision. You know, Oregon made four point five million dollars to play that game. And that was, you know, that was clearly part of, uh, you know, their thinking in taking Georgia and taking that game. Right. Uh, and and when yeah. they made that, I think they they scheduled that game. I think it, I looked this up December of 2018. Right. And back then. You know, could Oregon have foreseen that Georgia was going to be the absolute powerhouse it is now? I don't know. Maybe. But if you're Oregon, you've done these. You played LSU. You played Auburn. This is this part, playing that game is part of your DNA if you're Oregon. And that's what's made Oregon a national brand is playing those games on Labor Day weekend. And they should play it right now in the future. The Pac-12 will be better off playing some of those games in Las Vegas and L.A. on Labor Day weekend. But if you're Oregon, you gotta you gotta play that game. You just you just can't face plant like that. Yeah, it was it was bad for the conference. It was bad for the Oregon brand. Uh, Phil Knight was on the sideline. You know, I'm sure uh, he left with a sick feeling in the pit of his stomach. All right, we're gonna be back later this week. We'll take a look at the upcoming Pac-12 games. I'm John Canzano. You can read me exclusively at johnconzano.com. Uh, John Wilner, the Bay Area News Group superstar. Wilner, tell him again where to find you. Pac12hotline.com at the uh, Bay Area News Group mothership. Good talking to you and uh, looking forward to getting back and, and looking at week two and some of the, uh, maybe we'll take a look at some of the off the field issues because there's certainly plenty of those. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, leave us some feedback, and we'll catch you with the next episode.